Hey everyone, and welcome to the Unconventional Podcast. Now, my guest today is a lady by the name of Stella Morrissey. Now, I wanted Stella on for one very big reason. Stella was born profoundly deaf and was, by her own choice, the first deaf child to attend mainstream school in Yorkshire. Several qualifications, challenges and PA roles later, she went into the financial services sector, followed by bereavement support and life mentoring services. A huge welcome to you, Stella. Thank you very much for joining us on the Unconventional Podcast. Please give us a little bit about yourself in your own words and then why you've gone on to do something that I particularly love in your later career. Okay, good morning, Andy. Um, lovely to be here, by the way. Great to meet you after all the time. Um, I say after all the time, it's only been a few months, but it feels like a lifetime on LinkedIn. Um, so, so yeah, um, well, I, I was born deaf and um, and my I, I was adopted at just a few months old. So, so they didn't know that I had a hearing loss. Um, and they didn't actually, um, my mum couldn't prove to the medical profession that I was deaf until I was four years old. So somehow um, the brain, the brain is such a, um, a, a wonderful, wonderful machine in the fact that it, it finds alternative ways of working for you. You don't even have to tell it what to do. It just does it automatically. Um, and somehow over those years, um, because I've been adopted, because they didn't know my medical history, because I was supposed to be A1, they, um, they just put it down to slow development um, and that I wasn't speaking as quickly as, as anybody else. Um, but somehow I've still been able to understand, I've still been able to make myself understood. Um, and it wasn't until my, my, my younger sister was born, who um, interesting enough with my mum and dad's natural child, um, and it wasn't until she was born and she started talking that they had a comparison to see, oh, there really is something not quite right with, with Stella. Um, and it took my mum, you know, a couple of years to prove there was something definitely wrong with me in, yeah. in respect of my speech. Um, and it wasn't until um, she had me, the story goes, uh, I was sat on her knee in front of the, the specialist um, and he just wouldn't believe that I was there. And um, I was sat on my mum's knee facing the specialist and, and she said, she said, well, she said, what's this? And she said quite clearly, apparently, Stella, would you like some chocolate? And I'm a chocoholic. My mum must have known. Um, I'm a chocoholic. <laughs> and any child would turn round for chocolate. And I completely ignored her. So then when she turned me so she could, as I could look at her and I could see her face, and she asked, Stella, would you like some chocolate? Well, straight away, yeah, of course, of course I wanted chocolate. And that was the only way she could prove to the specialist that I was deaf. So I, I got my first little my first little black box on the front of my chest and, and oh I hated that thing. I absolutely detested it with a passion. I was really I was really outgoing. I was a I was a tomboy. Um I, I loved being out, you know, in the trees and um on the skateboards and the rest of it. I wasn't the average now. I was a pretty, pretty girl. Um I wanted to play and this black box got in the way of everything. And needless to say, there are quite a few that were um, accidentally smashed while I, um, <laughs> while I went off to play. And um, in the end, they decided to give me the behind the ear hearing aids. And, and that was it. That was it. And I, my, I just took off with that. So that is, that is how it came about. Um, wow. It, it, it's, you know, it's something that 
we take for granted that a child is going to be given to you, um, whether it's born to you or the way, that their health is going to be perfect. So, so what do you do when you find that mm. they're not? Um, how, how do you manage that? Um, and back then, there weren't the, the, the coping tools that there are today. Mm. There, there just wasn't. Um, mm. The deaf in that particular day and age were, um, were meant to be put away in a room, but meant to be kept behind hidden doors because it, it wasn't the dumb thing to be seen in public. Um, and, and in mm. fact, um, I remember my mum taking me to um, a certain school for the deaf um, because they, they decided that they needed to give me the best possible start. And I remember going in this room um, really, really clearly. They had all these games and toys and things out to be assessed. Um, I know now that it was about being assessed, but back then I didn't know what it was about. And I walked in uh, and this lady was trying to engage me into doing these tests. And I remember standing there and I, I did. I, I got really cross and, and, and I crossed my arms and I was like, well, I don't want to play. I got really sassy with it. I don't want to play. And along this room, they had this mirror all down one side. And, and I remember looking at the mirror, seeing me, but walking straight, something in me must have known that there were people behind me that I was being watched. I don't like being watched. And um, I went up to the mirror and I just went. And I remember looking at me and looking upwards. And my mum said to me later, she said, so you looked straight at me. How the hell you knew that I was stood right there? I do not know. And she said, so I had to come in. So they came in, did the games and what have you. Um, and, and on the way, I was leaving. Um, I just turned to my mum and just said, Mummy, I don't like this school. I don't want to come here. And that was it. I put my foot down. <laughs> and actually was. Do you know what? It's... The first person, the first deaf child to go to mainstream school in South Yorkshire. I was a guinea pig. And it was it was, it was, was a massive, massive challenge for me in so many ways because the support wasn't there. The support was just not there. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it, it, it wasn't... It was a great start because I had the support from my mum, who was absolutely superb. She was brilliant in everything that she did. And it's because of her um, that I can speak as well as that I can, because she mm. she worked really hard in getting me to to use, because back then you used a balloon to, to be able to feel the, the vibration. Because I can't hear or, or sense or see the difference between an S and a Z. It looks the same, it literally it's the same. So how do you tell the difference to a child? How do you make a child understand what the difference is? So to use a balloon and feel the vibration, and my mum used to tell me, this is an S, and she used to write the letter, and then tell me to feel the balloon. And I feel the vibration through the balloon, and this is a Z, and I could feel the, the, the buzzing, which was different, mm. so that I could actually work out where to put my tongue, how to actually word mm. my mouth. Um, and, and it is incredible hard work, but my mum, Blatter, worked so hard in in getting me to be the best that I could be. And it's because of her that I have the speech that I have. Um, yeah. But it, 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 it wasn't a small, it wasn't a small thing. What, what I find incredible about that story is if you said to someone now, a child or adult, um, you're going to you're going to lose 50 percent of your hearing, possibly, possibly more. It, for so many people, that would be the end of the world because they've become so used to hearing everything, sensing everything. Um, they haven't had to rely on other senses to make up for that loss of hearing, to kind of compensate for that. And 
Whereas because you didn't know any different, and as you said, the body does amazing things, the mind does amazing things, you developed that ability to communicate with what you'd been given. Because as far as you were concerned, that was that was just normal. And I find that incredible. And I think we do take things for granted. We do take our hearing, our sight, and all the rest of it for granted. But there are so many people in the world that don't have those luxuries and that are born with with those disadvantages that have to then adapt. And I find that what what you've been able to achieve in your career, and we'll obviously come on to that in a second, knowing the start you had, and obviously, like you said, you, you give a lot of credit to that to your to your mum, is just, to me, that's just truly incredible. Because one of my biggest fears in life is losing one of those senses, Hear, like hearing or sight. That's that's one of my biggest fears in life. It, it, it's... Um... I'm actually at the point um, I was. I had 50% hearing when when I was born. I'm now down to I've got 5% in one ear and 1% left in less. And I'm on the verge of losing that 1%. But it, it no longer frightened me as it as it once did. Um, it, it's something that it just it was going to come. It was going to happen because of old age or the rest of it, it. And I know that that day is coming. But yet at the same time, I would much much rather it be my hearing than, than my sight. That sounds really bizarre. I would rather have, I'm, I'm used to this. In fact, I think um, I was one point, I was considered for cochlear implant. And um, I'd really, I spent years thinking about it, thinking it would give me this perfect hearing and that I'd be the um, the normal person. That sounds really bad when I say it that way, but it, I'd become normal. I'd become just like everybody else. I would fit in. and. The strange thing was when I started looking into the cochlear implant and back then it, it was big, it was encumbersome, it, it was really in the way. And I was like looking at it thinking, I would stand out even more because mm. of that. And I thought, is it something I really want? And then when I discovered that everything sounds like a Mickey Mouse sound, everything's very, very tinny. Um, and I just thought, I, I, I don't want to hear things like that. I would rather go losing my hearing completely with the sounds that I'm used to. Um, because mm -hmm. I love music. I absolutely mm -hmm. adore music. Um, my, my dad was a professional singer. My, my sister became a professional singer. At the age of nine, my sister was nine when she became a professional singer. And wow. I, I was brought up with music. I loved the 80s. And, and that's mm -hmm. so ingrained on my soul that I don't want that sound to change. That sounds really odd. Mm -hmm. I don't want that sound to change. I'd rather lose my hearing than change it and and... It, it would irritate me. Yeah. It would irk me, if yeah. that makes sense. Um, but yet, having said all that, um, I, I much. I, I think your sight is more valuable than your hearing, and that sounds really odd. Even though I love music and all the rest of it, I, I think seeing things, you see so much more. Because of losing my hearing loss, I see things that people mm. don't notice. I, I see yeah. funny things in, in things that people probably would would never even take note of um and this time when I get myself into so much trouble because I've seen something and I feel that giggle going off in my stomach I'm thinking don't laugh don't laugh it's not funny like like captioning um I was talking to um Steve Ware um lovely lovely guy I was talking to him and I had the captioning on the bottom of the screen going off and he was talking about Eckhart Hall and I just thought Oh, because at the bottom of the screen it came up, Echo Toilet, 
Well, that was it. I creased with laughter. Steve couldn't talk to me because I got tears streaming down my face. And in fact, I couldn't tell him for laughing what I was laughing at. And then when I did tell him, he couldn't stand a joke now. But it, it's things like that, that especially if you're in a serious meeting and you've got to be professional, especially networking, when you've got all these faces staring at you, and, and you're giggling to high hell because of something that come up on the on the captioning. You can't tell anybody what you're laughing at because they don't get it. They don't see it yeah. in the way that you see it. And I think anybody that has any form of disability, that other senses make up and their humour is is different. It's it's almost it's almost almost dark. Um, mm -hmm. but it is because we can laugh at those things that we find funny, but people who have those senses probably wouldn't wouldn't see the same yeah. thing in the same way. Um, yeah. And I think humour is massive where disability is concerned. You have to have a good mm. sense of humour if you've got a disability. Um, you have to laugh back at life rather than like laughing at you, if that makes sense. Did you know that the unconventional brand has three arms? The podcast you're listening to right now, Unconventional Apparel, where a percentage of the profits go to the National Autistic Society, and most recently, Think Unconventional, a social media company with busy business owners and CEOs in mind, putting your social media presence on the social media map. It does make sense, and, I, and I've heard a few people say that actually, because I think you can get bogged down with your difficulties, challenges, however people want to, to word them, and I think when you've done what you've achieved and, and kind of overcome them in the way that you have, you can laugh back at life. I really like that expression, actually, laugh back at life, because life can throw you a, a real bad hand sometimes. But the reality is, yeah, it, it is too serious. And I think the reality is it's going to continue throwing you bad hands. You know, even if you've got perfect hearing and perfect sight, You'll you'll have have other challenges in life that that come about that that cause you a problem. So, I, I want to touch on when you mentioned earlier that um, in time you may lose the the natural hearing in in is. How do the the aids that I saw you putting on when we first came on on to the call? How do they support that, or is it a case of when it goes, it it goes, and then it's you've got nothing. I'm laughing because every time I, I come on to, and people are not understanding this, but people who've spoke to me already on on, on Zoom and on online, um, it's such a faff um, coming on board because you've got so many bits and pieces of technology that have all got to talk to each other, and if somebody, yeah. it's one part of it is not talking. I'm 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 seeing somebody. I can read them. They can hear me, but can't understand how I can communicate with them when nothing's <laughs> working. Um, and it's like, I'm not reading, I'm not reading, but it's fine, I get there. So so that's what I'm laughing at with the, the start of the conversation there. Um, but yeah, um, the the hearing loss, it, the hearing aids themselves give volume, but they only give volume to the part of your ear that the, the cochlear, it, it consists of lots of what we call cilia, it's hair within the cochlear. And in somebody in the certain hearing loss I've got, because it's a very different time, in the congenital hearing loss that I have, that cilia hair, those hair didn't form to the full length that they were supposed to. So when we hear something, it's a case of um, we feel those electrical impulses coming from the sound, the the, the eardrum, and that then it, it reverberates through the cochlea itself, and it makes the fluid in there move, which actually makes the cilia move that transmits 
electrical signal to give a sound. And the, the cilia weren't developed fully enough in my development in as a baby, as a child, as, as before I was even born. And subsequently, um, because of that, I only have certain tones that I can picture that I can hear because I didn't have that full development. So the, the hearing aid gives them, uh, give me the volume, which then hopefully makes the eardrum vibrate more um, to hopefully stimulate that cilia. But once the cilia have gone, they, they're gone. Um, so I will just, I will, it will just get so the cilia moves less and less and less to the point where there's no movement at all and that sound I, won't, I can't pick up on that. Um, the, the It's something that I, I just think I've just got used to. Um, and sometimes at the end of the day, this sounds odd, at the end of the day, um, hearing takes so much energy because you do it naturally. You don't have to think about it. Um, I, I have to, as a hearing, as a, a deaf person in a hearing world, I have to not focus just on hearing. I'm conscious on a hypervigilance in all my senses at all times because I'm trying to work out what I'm hearing. The brain naturally does it. You can't switch that part off. The brain naturally tries to work out what are you hearing? What's this sound? What's that? What's that movement? Is that a noise that you're not picking up? And it, it sounds really, really bizarre, but even in conversation, um, I'm focusing so hard on, on lip reading that um, I'm lip reading somebody I'm getting the visual sound, but that only gives me 35%. So if I've only got 35% of, of information from lip reading, the rest of it, 65% of it is sheer guesswork. Hmm. So if you don't know what the topic is you're talking about, if you remember I emailed and said, what are we going to be talking about? Because that for, a for a deaf person, they need to have that safety net. If they know what the subject matter is, their guesswork is a bit more accurate. If, if suddenly, you know, someone changes the conversation, uh, the topic in conversation really suddenly and you're thinking somebody talking about one thing and suddenly it, nothing matches. You, you can't guess, you can't fill in the gaps. Um, there is a really interesting, um, on, on, on the network, on the internet, there is a really interesting app where it shows you, um, it shows you how somebody would hear something, it's the same track, played over and over again but in different elements of hearing loss um obviously I can't tell the difference but my son who's perfectly um perfectly hearing he he he's listening and um he gets upset mm. he does really get upset um and what really hit home from oh I've, I've just remembered um I've just remembered sorry I've just had a bit of emotional memory um we were watching Polar Express when it first came out and um, I'm really close to my son, um, he's, he's 28, 29 now, um, but I'm really close to him. And we were watching Polar Express, so he was a young boy. And we were, we, you know, we were just enjoying the film and the, the bell was being rung. And as the bell was being rung, it just went, Mummy, you, you, you can't hear that, can you? I looked at him and I said, no, sweetheart, I can't. He went, Oh, that's so sad. And I go, and I'm just, I'm getting upset now thinking about it. And I said, Jack, it's fine, sweetheart. It's fine. It's just one of those things. And 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 that's what life's about. It's fine. But I really, really got upset afterwards. I couldn't let him know how upset I was. But he was really devastated yeah. because I couldn't hear this bell. Um, which interestingly takes me to another bell that I couldn't hear. Um, my dad. Oh, 
bless him. My dad's been gone twenty years, man. And absolutely, I adored him. Um, he was my he was my hero in so many ways. And every Christmas, he would dress up as Father Christmas for the local kids, and and they'd all be in the, in, the, in the room waiting for him to come in. Now, four or five years old, uh, I just got my hearing aid, and he came in as Father Christmas to give presents to everyone. And I went up to him, and my dad, this is what the difference, this is different for somebody who is, is deaf. I went up to him, Now my dad had had a car accident when he was a young boy, and he had a very, very faint scar just above his, his eyebrow. And then I went up, even though he got this big beard on, he got this big, big, you know, big red hat stuff on, I was looking at him, and he went, Daddy? Because I could see this little scar. Well, my mum just grabbed me up and rubbed me out and I was never allowed to be in the rest of the kids from that point. And I was told I had to be Santa's little helper. Oh, I was delighted. I was really delighted. So proud I was Santa's little helper. Yeah. And I'd gone in to help him get ready um, as part of Christmas to go in to take the presents then. And my my dad was, was <laughs> my dad was half dressed. Um, he'd got his trousers on, um, he'd not put his beard on, he'd got his coat to put on and he was just putting his boots on. And I discovered the bells. Now, I hadn't realised in previous years that, that these bells had been rung just before my dad turned up. So all the kids would run over to the window, looking out of the window for Santa's sleigh to appear and, and be there. And then my dad would just appear behind the back of them and they'd think he'd come down the chimney. Yeah. And, and I didn't know any of that because I just thought, oh, the kids are into the window, let's join in. I never run to the window. Um, so I didn't know that this bell was, was very significant. And I picked up these bells and I'm saying, and I'm, ringing, I'm shaking these bells, not knowing that they're ringing. I say, Daddy, what are these for? <laughs> these bells are going. All the kids are screaming in the other room, running towards the window. And my dad's trying to put his jacket on as fast as he could to get out of there and to go to give these presents. I said, give me that, give me that. And there was, you know, there was so many jokes made about the, the Tinkerbell. And I got given them the Tinkerbell from that point onwards by my dad. Um, so it was really, really quite comical from that point onwards. So there's lots of things that I missed out on, but yet wonderful stories looking back of, of how how I learned about the, the challenge of being deaf. But yet at the same time, my son had to learn it as well. It impacted on him massively. Um, he had nothing wrong with his development because he could only learn his, his speech from me. Even though my speech is good, I sound um, short-tongued. I sound short-tongued. I've not quite got that full, that full, um, full moment, if that makes sense. But my son copies me. Obviously, I'm teaching him how to speak, so his speech is based upon my speech, and he's got nothing wrong with him. So in that sense, it gets passed on. So when he's talking, he sounds short-tongued, but he's not. So this is all sorts of it impacts in every different direction of life, if that makes sense. Um, but my hearing loss itself, it's something that um, you do come to terms with. You do get used to um, adjusting as, as changes are made. It's, it's like life for everyone. You know, it's not what happens to you that's important. It's how you handle it. And, it, and you, you know you adjust to the changes, and you just keep making those changes. You keep growing, and every time something happens to me, especially when I'm hearing concern in 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 the loss, it's just like okay, find a solution. I've never been one to sit on my backside and do nothing. I can't. It's just not in me to do that. Yeah. I find a solution. I have to find that solution. And if there's no solution, then I learn on acceptance. Yeah. 
and I just accept it is okay. So this door is closed to me. What am I going to do now? Mm. I'll find something else. And you do, you just keep looking for something new. And I guess that stems from that, that uh, those early years of not having the luxuries that every other child had, I guess, and having to adapt without even knowing what was going on. You, you're naturally adapting to what was going on. You Obviously, um, we mentioned right at the start that you were the first uh, person in your in your area to a deaf person to go to mainstream school. How did you find those school years in terms of how people responded to you, um, it, involved and accepted you as a deaf person? How did you find that? What experiences did you go through there? I was really, really lucky in, in some respects. Um, my my primary school, I absolutely adored. I loved it. Absolutely loved it. Um, I I I remember fitting in quite well. Um, the, the 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 class that I grew up with. Um, it was interesting because the other day I posted a photograph of me with the with the little the black box, um, and so many of the people that I'd gone to school with actually commented on it. Said I don't remember that black box. Mm. I, I can't remember you wearing hearing aids. You were just stellar. They didn't see the hearing loss. They just saw me as a person. And I think that is the difference. When children are so young, they just automatically accept it. They don't look for the differences. They just see the person. They see beyond the body aspect. They see the person. They see the spirit within, and which is so beautiful. That is how, how children just love naturally. Um, and it, it's what they learn over the years that changes those perceptions. Mm. And, and they then start to notice things differently. Um, I was looking, I had brilliant teachers that supported me, not as you would support a deaf child, but supported me in the sense of um, I was never left to be excluded. Um, I'm too noisy, I'm too loud. Um, I, was, I was too busy playing, I was too busy. I was kind of the leader, despite my hearing loss, I was the leader of my little group kind of thing. Um, I was the one that always climbed to the top of it. I had no fear whatsoever. And I was always the one climbing to the top of the, you know, the climbing frame. And, and there was tarmac, there was no, you know, there was no soft, soft fall no. grounding then. It was tarmac. It was concrete. You fell, you hurt. Um, and it, it was just like, I just had no fear. So all the way through school, I was fine. Up to even primary school. Now, I've been really, really protected at, at that school. I had a wonderful head teacher. Um, uh, Mr. Crossley, who who he passed a few years ago now. And when I first had to, he came in, I was about seven at that point. Um, and he came into that school and he he had a reputation of being loud, of being tall, of being big. He had this massive great beard. He was he was quite terrifying on sight. Um and I had to go and get some hearing aid batteries. I wasn't allowed to carry the hearing aid batteries in classroom. I had to go to the head teacher's office to get replacement. And when my hearing aid battery went, and it was just like, oh, I've got to go and face the dragon. I've got to go and face the monster in the head teacher's office on my own. And it was like, oh dear. Um, and I remember walking down the steps to go to, and I could hear him. He, you know, I got one hearing that was working, but I could hear him, and his voice was booming out of his office. And I remember been absolutely terrified and stood outside his door with my hand knowing I got to knock and not knowing what to do and I knew I got to get a hearing battered and eventually I just did the tiny little timid knock and I heard this come in <laughs> I'm 
up shaking in my boot. I opened the door. Well, he saw me. I was quite tiny. Um, and he saw me. He went, he said, oh, Stella, isn't he? I just went, yes, sir. And he said, what can I do for you? I just went, can I, um, can I have me hearing that ratchet, please? He went, yes, certainly. Where are they? <laughs> And he got these batches out for me and it was so lovely and so kind and i instantly fell in love with this man he was absolutely a hero to me and and i stayed friends with him long after i left school and, and even went to um to to gatherings where he was there and he was such a wonderful wonderful man i had a lot of time for him but when he shouted oh hearing a volume had to go down it was like you can shout at anybody else i can cope with it now i don't have to hear <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so it was lovely, but it was those moments where hearing a battery, something as simple as a hearing a battery would strike terror into me because I knew I had to go to the headmaster's office. Um, but things like that, people don't don't understand how much it takes for somebody who has a disability in any form or shape to have to try and be as ordinary as everybody else, to try and fit in. When I went to secondary school, different scenario altogether because I've moved from the, this, this family-orientated village school to a huge secondary school for all the local schools to go to. And it had the reputation of being one of, it's still, it, it did for a long, long time, of one of the worst schools in the whole of UK to go to. The, the education you got there was abysmal and it, it wasn't pleasant. Mm. Um, and when I got there, um, my mum, for all that, I love my mum, uh, and she she was brilliant with my hearing. Um, she used to make me wear skirts. I do not like skirts. Hate skirts. I'm a child person, and I had to wear skirts for school. But because of this, the, the fact that I was wearing skirts, I would I stood out. Everybody else was wearing trousers. I stood out five miles. I was wearing hearing aids, and um, one particular boy that was in my form decided to take a dislike to me, and. It was absolutely awful. And for the first six weeks up to up to the half term, I was bullied day in and day out by the, by this boy and these cronies and the bullying got worse. And all my school friends that I come up with, because I was being the focus of the bullied, just, just left me. They just walked away. And it was horrendous because my work was already isolated enough as it was, but to be isolated again even more by friends who I, I you know, just suddenly disappeared, it just made it really, really scary. And um, on the on the last day, just before half term, um, I got so fed up of 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 being picked on, and I could feel all the resentment and the anger building up. And um, on this last day, a um, couple of days before, um, this guy came up to me. Um, he said something, and I turned around to face him because I didn't hear him. Turned around to face him, and when I turned around, he he boxed me on my ears with my hearing aids in, and there was just blood everywhere. Um, pull, I just remember seeing red, really remember seeing red, pulling my hearing aids out, putting them in my bag. I can't remember anything of of what had happened. But all those six weeks of my frustration of being able to fit in, my communication inability, my inability to be to be normal like everybody else, I just let it rip. Mm. Um, and and this poor boy. Um, it sounds awful now. This poor boy ended up in hospital 
um i picked up my bag left it in left him on the floor because he was unconscious i just literally laid into him the aggression i hadn't realized how much aggression had built into me over the years of, of having a hearing loss and you wouldn't think it would but if you cannot communicate and you have no ability to understand it's a scary frightening place to be mm. and the frustration just builds up and i remember leaving him on the floor walking home to my mum by the time i got home to my mum my mum opened the door and she just looked at me and she said, school's been in touch, you've been expelled, what have you done? And it's just like, so then, because I've not told them I've been bullied, all this story came out and she's absolutely horrified, absolutely horrified. And bless her, she, she got on the phone, education department, she was, she was my mum was a real, real force to be reckoned with, mm. she really was, and got on the phone and she got me moved to a new school starting straight after half term and from from that point onwards I, I just I just went with that um I got better not fantastic support as you get today but I got better support than I had at the previous school mm. and subsequently um I found that I could run and um wow. I wasn't just a runner um I went on to to become I ran for South Yorkshire Athletics um I was in the, the South Yorkshire rounders team, the cricket team, um, football team, hockey team. Um, I, I did all that. Um, I got awards. Um, and and that was because of the fact that it was just so it was active. It's something I really mm. loved to do. I threw my passion into that. Um, and interestingly enough, while I was at secondary school, um, I remember having a an interview with the careers teacher, as, as we all do. And um we were sat there and she, she asked me what I wanted to do. Now, I'd always wanted to be a brain surgeon. So mm. I have no idea why I just wanted to be a brain surgeon. I wanted to heal people. I wanted to, you know, and I think it must have stemmed from a hearing loss in the fact that I wanted to put something right. And it obviously was something wrong with my, my brain mm. if my hearing wasn't working. Um, and I told her, I said, I want to be a brain surgeon. And she looked at me and she laughed, really laughed horribly. I remember her very, very well. Um, and she said, Stella, she said, let's be real here. And she said, so the only future that you possibly can have is being a carer at home for your mum and dad while they got old. Do not expect to be anything else more than that. And if you're really lucky, you might be able to find that you can stack shelves. And that was wow. her career's advice wow. to me at the time. And I'm looking at her and when somebody tells me I can't, hmm, yes, I can. I'll find a way. And um, because of that, it gave me, instead of doing what she thought it would do, would knock me flat, um, she she pushed me. She was also my biology teacher. And I remember the first lesson after that, um, we were doing dissecting of, of, um, of hearts. Um, and she dragged me up to the front of the class. She said, she said, is she going to be a brain, t uh, a brain surgeon? to so come up here and she didn't show me how to do that. I'd never done anything like that before. I was like 13 years old. And it was like, well, what do I do? And I just literally, I did exactly what I thought you should do, and I just left it. And apparently, I got everything right. Um, so she, you know, her attempt to humiliate me didn't humiliate me; it fired me up. Mm. Um, mm. So I went on. I got my, I got my O levels, my, my GCSEs as they are now. Um, went on, did my A levels, um, and then in my final year of my A levels, uh, I was going on to be a physiotherapist at the time. I decided my my career option to change slightly, and there was a lovely lady that. Um, she was doing all the sports with me as well, and and Carolyn and I, we were both becoming 
physiotherapist and um, she's like we'll, you know get to university we'll, we'll do all this and in my in the Christmas before and uh, the final year um I had a, a uh, I woke up with a slip disc so that put my sports out of the window it put my physiotherapy career out the window because you can't lift any well back then you couldn't lift anybody up if you had a slip disc and you should mm. be able to do that as part of the job mm. so my my whole career everything had just gone out of the window um so it was like okay and the strange thing was at that point in time which comes me back to to bring me back to where i am today um in that final year i retook my art o level as a, a a soft option while i was doing my a level to do fully to give me something to relaxing to do because i loved that absolutely loved that and i did my first piece of homework handed it into my my tutor and he looked at it and he said Stella, what is it that you're studying for? And I told him. And he said, can you please drop everything and do your A level? You've, you've got six months and you should be able to get an A grade A level in six months. I, I want you to do this. You should be doing art. You shouldn't be doing anything else. You're too good to be doing anything else. You need to be doing art. I spoke to my mum about it. And my mum turned around and said, Stella, you said only the top 1% can make a career out of art you are not good enough to do that I was absolutely devastated mm. absolutely devastated because I had my art teacher telling me one thing I had my mum telling me the other and it was like I'm gonna have to be a good girl and do what my mum said and then I went on the hard my slip disc so the career that I thought I was doing really well with I was going with my mum's option and, and getting a paid job as everybody else was doing and it was the wrong at that time it was it was the wrong choice. It just suddenly was the wrong choice. So it, it kind of blew it all out of the window for me. And it's quite so strange that all these years later, here I am doing art, doing crafty mm. things, doing the things that I love to do. So yeah. that is how it comes about. It, it's, it's strange how the world gives you exactly what you need at the time that you need it the most. Mm. I think the story of how you've... And to be honest, this, this podcast, I've spoken less on this podcast than I have on any other podcast. Because... <laughs> no, but that's, that's perfect. Because um, you've, your story is so inspirational. And, and, and for me, it's been full of setbacks, overcome it. Setback, overcome it. Pivot and change. And I think there's a hell of a lot that people listening can learn from people that are born or at a very young age face challenges that that we would look at today as adults and think, I, I can't overcome that. If I lost, for instance, in your case, if I, if I lost my hearing, that would be game over for me. But you didn't know any different. And in life, you've had all of those different setbacks, overcome them. And then moved on again and, and moved in, in a different direction. And I think what you do now, and I want to ask you a little bit about that um, next. As you say, the inspiration for it started many, many years ago. But it wasn't, it just didn't seem like the right time or situations in your life meant that it wasn't to be at that point. So you went in different directions. So... Tell us a little bit about your current business um, and how that's kind of evolved and um, and, and exactly what it is and, and, and what you do. Okay. Um, 
Well, in 2010, um, I, I had um, I'd been a financial advisor for some years up to that point. And in 2010, I had a car accident and um, this particular car accident left me with injuries that were permanently disabling. Um, my neck had been injured and um, I was permanently disabled from that point onwards. And it meant that I couldn't continue doing what I was doing and that I was in bed for nine, ten months of the year. And, and for it took them a couple of years to diagnose what was actually going wrong. And in, in a nutshell, my brain wouldn't, the brain gives the wrong signal to my body and vice versa. It just gets misinterpreted, a communication issue, as mm. it were. Mm. Um, and subsequently, I'm in, I'm in constant pain. Um, I'm, I'm constantly fatigued. And at that point, um, when they told me I was going to have to deal with this for the rest of my life, that there was no cure and that pain, there's no pain relief either available for it. I just had to live with it. Um, when you're in your mid-40s, to be told you've got the next 50 years living potentially 50 years, living in, in that state, I didn't want to be here. Mm, mm. I, I just, it, it was something that I thought I'd overcome all these things all to the point for this to happen. I was so angry, so, so angry, which obviously led to depression, led to anxiety. I had a son who was just going up to um, sixth form college to do his A-levels. I got to get him through that to get to university. I had no family. It's just me and my son. Um, so it was just like, this can't be happening to me. Mm. This is just, this is so not fair. Mm. And I had mm. a lot of trouble trying to get my head around that. And um, for about six years, um, I had this thought of, I contemplated suicide because I thought if I wasn't there, I wouldn't be in pain. I wanted the pain to stop. I just wanted an, an end to the pain. Um, and it was only the thought of my son being left on his own that stopped me from doing it. I just, I could not, I couldn't leave him. Um, because I'd been adopted, this sounds really bad, because I'd been adopted and because I'd lost my family again a second time, um, I knew what being alone really, really felt like. I knew what isolation felt like and I didn't want that for my son. So it didn't matter what happened to me. It's funny, isn't it, how when you become a parent, you put yourself through hell. Mm. as long as your kids are okay and mm. and that was my my driving point then was I can't do this to Jack mm. it doesn't matter how much pain I'm in I'm going to have to bite the bullet because I cannot allow Jack to see how bad I am um and I hid an awful lot from him which obviously caused a lot of internal stress from you know for, for me long term and in the end um it wasn't until um a friend of mine was fundraising for a local charity uh, and she said, Shadolton, will you help me make some Christmas baubles? Now, the bizarre thing is, um, going back to my dad, um, my dad my dad and I used to decorate Christmas, the house at Christmas and Christmas out. It was just absolutely wonderful. We love Christmas time. And my dad was putting a Christmas bauble up when he passed away. Unexpected, didn't expect it whatsoever. And it's not about him in that respect. It's just quite really bizarre that everything is so intricately linked in throughout your life you don't realize it and when my friend asked me to create these baubles I just thought yeah because it kind of it took me to my dad it was like my dad was my love um and it was really really inspirational to me in a lot of ways and as I'm creating these baubles 
the pain that I was in, I found that was starting to reduce. The, the stress was reduced then. I felt my body relaxing more. It was like, oh, I can move. I'm not as bad as I was yesterday. Um, and each day I went by and I could move that little bit more. And lo and behold, Ben then turned around and said, oh, do you think you can make me a garland? Well, I said, well, I've never made one before. I said, I don't even know what to do. And she said, well, can you give it a go? Now, she was retiring. And I said, yeah, not a problem. I'll, I'll make you one. And I thought, oh, I'll tell her story. I'll tell her life story. She's retiring. I can put everything that she's ever done in her life. And I can put this on a garland for her. And she can then sit in her you know, living room. And she can have it. It's four metres long, this thing. And she can have it on the fireplace and it can remind her, it can tell her story of all the things that she's ever achieved in her life, all the loves, all the dreams, everything that she's got going off for her. It will, you know, will show her a positive. It doesn't have to be a sad ending that she's retired. So she wasn't expecting that. So when she did get in, she put it up. Um, oh, well. An emotional moment to say the least. Mm, I <laughs> and that is where Stella Garland came from. That's where the inspiration came from. That is, uh, again, just when I thought this podcast couldn't actually become any more inspirational, I guess is, is the right word. You talk about in 2010 with the accident and then that process from then until now in terms of how you've gradually got back to having the movement. And, and uh, are you in the same level of pain that you once were or you are? Yeah. The pain didn't go away. I'm in pain constantly, 24-7. Um, yeah. I have two of the most painful conditions going. I have something called trigeminal neuralgia, which is otherwise known as a suicide disease um, um, because of the levels of suicide that happen from it. Um, and the other one is fibromyalgia with CPTSD as well. So I have a lot of combinations of different things. Um, but, yeah, it, it doesn't stop. But what I have found, interesting enough, this is what I was talking with Steve Ware about, um, what I have found about was with mindfulness, it's such a huge, powerful tool. Um, and what I hadn't realised over the years is that I had naturally just gone to doing, I didn't know it was called mindfulness back then, um, and I just naturally started doing mindfulness um, things unknowingly. Um, and it was only when I, I went on a mindfulness course and discovered, well, I've been doing this all these years, you know, it, you know, it's something that it's natural, isn't it? And I realised then that, no, it's not. People don't normally think about listening to the body to, to, you know, for it to tell you what it needs. And and, and that's what I'd been doing. Um, so because of the accident, it made me tune in more to what my bodily needs were. Because at the time, I was doing 78 hour weeks. I was exhausted. Um, and it was it was literally my body saying, full stop, we need to stop, we need a bike. Um, so it's forced me to stop, it's forced me to take note of my body, it's forced me to look at what I'm doing to it. Um, you know, you, you can't you can't keep running in the way that you are doing, you need to take time out. So because of that, it's made me readjust my, my priorities, whereas I've become not so I am self-focused but I'm not egotistically self-focused I'm aware of what my body's telling me I'm aware of what my senses are telling me I'm aware of what I need to do to take care of the best care of me in this moment so it's really really um it's quite paramount that if you listen to your body it will tell you what you need and if you do that then you will find the joy that you're seeking for on the inside and it's the joy on the inside that then comes to the surface and that's what you get in your life because you then start to attract the joy back 
and that that is exactly what I've done with with the garland. It's become my joy, but then my garlands have then been bringing other people joy, um, and I just life is despite all the pain, despite everything else that I'm dealing with, um, despite the fact that sometimes it takes me two hours to be able to get out of bed in the morning because I can't move. I know I'm coming to this. I know I'm coming to the sparkles. I know I'm coming to to what I'm doing. Um, because I also do bereavement counselling as well. So I have two aspects of the scale where I'm helping other people get beyond their own bereavement, their own grief, no matter how that grief has come about, to find a better place, but also helping them find the tools for themselves which work best for them to get to the better place in the end. And maybe maybe they will find their own garlands in, in a different way. Stella, this has been uh, a truly... Uh um thought-provoking inspirational motivational way to spend the best part of an hour so thank you very very much for joining us today absolutely incredible story the, the garlands is called stella garlands stella garlands yes stella garlands so uh anyone that's uh looking for garlands in any form you want i'm sure that you will be able to craft something tailored to them um and yeah it's like i say it's been it's been fascinating absolutely fascinating a huge pleasure to have you on um thank you now you're more than welcome and um yeah enjoy the rest of your day and uh we will speak again very soon thanks andy thanks for having me take care now